We praise you. We thank you for who you are. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Go ahead and take your Bibles this morning and turn with me to John chapter 19. John chapter 19. We're going to finish up our sermon series this morning talking about the gospel and what the gospel is. Elementary age students, you can head out. You see my wife back there, the one in whom I delight. She's standing there. <laughs> um, you can head back with her and there'll be a lesson there for, for you. John chapter 19, we are going to look this morning at verses 28 through 30 in this account of the death of, of Jesus. Before we get started this morning, I wanted to build a little bit on what Mark said, just about... I was reflecting on this this week, and that's when it was right in step with what I was reflecting on. Um, and, and we were talking about being the church, right? What does that mean? What does that look like? If we're in Christ. We are the church. Um, oftentimes, I think that, that we still treat the church, even though we know that we are the church, and not just a, 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 we're not just doing a task or, or coming here with a, because our calendar or our iPhone pops in a notification on Sunday morning. But I think that the reason, uh, that the, the thing that we need to consider is, what are we doing uh, when we come together? What are we doing when we come together? It's not just merely coming together again to fulfill an obligation or to do something uh, that we, we must do throughout the course of the week. We are actually coming together and participating in what it looks like uh, to be together in eternity, not just here on this, on this earth, but together in eternity. Now, we know that this side of eternity, things look a little bit different, and there's people here who, who might rub you the wrong way, or, or there are people here who, who, who might frustrate you a little bit, and, and so we all inhabit sinful flesh, and so we do and we think in sinful ways. But when we come together, what we are doing is saying, this is what the corporate worship gathering in eternity is going to look like. We stand here together and we sing songs together, praising our God, and we will do that in an uninhibited way in, in glory, in the, in the life to come. And so we're doing that together as God's people, saying, no, this is our more natural state. This might not feel like your more natural state. It, it probably doesn't. But because, because of who we are, just as a people. But um, this is, the Bible tells us, this is together corporately when we gather. This is a more natural state than whatever it is that we're going to go do for the rest of our day. To be together with the people of God as one who is in Christ is a more natural state than, than whatever we do throughout the course of the remainder of our week. So that's partly why we gather, and that's partly why we say it's important to consider ourselves as the church, being the church, and not just doing church together. Not just doing it. So I wanted to say that because I think sometimes we, we say, yeah, we're the church, that's great, but then we still treat it just like something we do. We start to think of this, this corporate worship, tied together as other believer, with other believers as our more natural state. This is what I think this will begin, begin to shape and change uh, who we are as a people and how we interact with one another and, and frankly, how we know God. So with that said, let's turn to our text this morning, John chapter 19 verses 28 through 30. Just these three verses this morning, and I'll read these for us, and we'll dive in a little bit here. John chapter 19, verses 28 through 30. After this, Jesus, knowing that it was now finished, said, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine and a hyssop branch and held it up to his mouth. 
When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head, and he gave up his spirit. We get this text. Most of us have known grief. I think most of us in this room have known grief. We've lost someone or something that's important to us. Um, we've experienced the despair associated with some sort of great loss in our lives. We have all experienced some sort of, some sort of grief in our life. When we lose a loved one, um, we experience grief, I think, most intensely. Um, two, weeks, two weeks from today, May 14th, will mark the two-year anniversary of losing my, my grandfather. He left my, my grandmother after 64 years of marriage. Um, they have been married together for 64 years. Most of us in this room uh, haven't sniffed that long, um, that, 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 much, that many years marriage. Most of us haven't even gotten close to that. And while the death of my grandfather was hard for me to endure, it was hard for me to, to, to consider the relationship that I had with him and being broken off from that in his life, um, I can't even begin to imagine having spent 64 years with him, with him next to your side every single day, um, and then to have that person leave you. Um, I can't even begin to think like that. I'm just where I am in life. But when Matthew records Jesus' death in chapter 27 of his gospel, the, the parallel account to John chapter 19, when he, when he gives us this, this account of Jesus' death, he tells us that Jesus cried out with a loud voice, and he said, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If we're experiencing grief here on earth, after knowing someone intimately for maybe 10 or 20 or 30 or 64 years, we experience grief on this earth after knowing someone infinitely, looking at that account, looking at what Jesus cries out in, in chapter 27 of Matthew's Gospel, Jesus, the incarnate Son of God, who had existed in perfect relationship with his Father for eternity past. This was not a frail cry of a man when he spoke these words, Why have you forsaken me? This was not a frail cry of a man wondering where God was. It was an eternal relationship broken, one that we can't put years on. We cannot put years on the, the relationship between God the Father and God the Son that had existed from before time began. And so that which we were created for here on this earth, we as people were created to have intimate, personal relationship with God and never have experienced that fully, was now removed from the uncreated one, Jesus Christ himself. And for the first time in eternity, he had experienced the forsaking of God. And as the weight of the sin of the world crushed Jesus Christ, and drove him from the presence of his Father, he called, giving true meaning to what David says in Psalm 22, Why have you forsaken me? Why have you forsaken me? Why have you forsaken me? So this morning, as we think then about John chapter 19, and in particular Jesus' words, It is finished. Um, I think that we need to consider the question, about the finality of the gospel. What is final about the gospel? The gospel eternally gives answer to this question. Why have you forsaken me? Why have you forsaken me? If you hear nothing else this morning, hear, hear this. Hear this. When Jesus said, it is finished, he was proclaiming that separation from God has ended for those who trust him. 
When Jesus said, it is finished, he was proclaiming that separation from God had ended for those who trust him. Jesus asked the question, Lema Sabachthani, for the last time. It never needs to be asked again if you are in Christ. If we trust Jesus, we will never have to ask that question. Why have you forsaken me? And this stands at the heart of the gospel. This stands at the very heart of what the gospel is. Peter writes in 1 Peter, he says, Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And central to what Peter writes is that God has and will not forsake us as his people. God has and will not forsake us as his people. In Deuteronomy 31, God tells Moses, he speaks to Moses, and he says, um, who, Moses is 120 years old at this point, and God looks at him and speaks to him at the eve of moving to take the promised land, and he says that he will never leave him for, for, or forsake him. Moses then calls Joshua and relays the message. The inheritance that God had promised his people. This land that they were going to move into. Um, but even more than that, um, his unwavering presence. He had given them an inheritance of his very presence. And when Jesus commissions his disciples then in Matthew 28, after this Matthew 27 passage where Jesus even calls out, why have you forsaken me? He says to his disciples, he promises them even, that he is always with them. And then he says, even as we read earlier, we were thinking about that Acts passage, 1 verse 6 through 8. He gives them his, power, his spirit to empower the mission. So God has not forsaken us. He's established His presence in us. The very Spirit that dwells within us is the marker of His presence. It is the sign and the seal of that presence. Because of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, this is our inheritance. You see, as Christians, we, we talk about eternal life a lot. And that's kind of just a, you know, like an eternal, eternal life. We talk about that. But I don't think we really define that. We don't begin to think about what is eternal life. What does that look like? And the way that the Bible paints the portrait is, is very clear. It's not just breath and blood and synapses. It's life uninhibited, perfect relationship with God. Uninhibited relationship with God. And if you trusted Jesus, you have entered into this relationship. If you have not trusted Jesus, then you stand to inherit eternal death, which is the exact opposite. It's the exact opposite. It is the removal of the presence of God totally. Not just a loss of, loss of breath, not just a loss of blood, not just a loss of synapses, but the, the removing of the presence of God. This is a biblical portrait of hell, a complete eternal existence separated from God. No hope. The hope that is granted to us in this life in Christ Jesus is removed. So Jesus experienced this life, this eternal relationship with God from beginning, from before time began, and extended it into eternity past. And then on the cross, even as we look at our text this morning, and then on the cross he stepped into a loss of that relationship and cried, God, why have you forsaken me? And in that last, uh, in that cry, established the promise for God's people, you will never leave us or forsake us. So this is the gospel. So as we've been considering what the gospel is, and you'll see behind me there's a definition uh, that we've been working with. Um, if we can have that above the screen. Or I can just read it. Um, there it is. Okay. So the gospel is the good news, the news that Jesus Christ, the righteous one, died for our sins, rose again to eternally reign as king, so now that there is no condemnation for those who believe, but only never-ending joy. 
This is our definition of the gospel. This is what the gospel is. We've talked about the response to the gospel over the last few weeks. Um, and this morning, we're going to kind of bring it all home and consider what it means that the gospel is final. So three things as we look again at our text this morning, John chapter 19, verses 28 through 30, especially the, the words of Jesus where he says, it is finished, especially those words. Three things for us to consider this morning. Um, the first is that Jesus spoke, it is finished, to indicate complete accomplishment. The second, Jesus spoke, it is finished, to indicate the Father's complete satisfaction. And then finally, Jesus spoke, it is finished, to indicate and make possible our complete satisfaction. So we'll take these in turn, consider them as we look at these words of Jesus. So Jesus spoke, it is finished, to, in to indicate complete accomplishment. That's our first point this morning. So again, over the last couple of weeks in particular, we've thought about what the response to the gospel looks like. What does it look like to respond to the gospel? Two weeks ago on Easter, we thought about what it means to deny oneself, to take up one's cross, to follow Jesus. What does it mean? What does that look like for us as a people to come together and to deny ourselves, to put the interests and the needs of others above our own interests, um, to deny ourselves, to walk out of self-centered uh, behavior and into Christ's death? And then, that last week, we talked about the fact that the gospel is driving us, is moving us, is compelling us out of our spiritual infancy into an understanding of how the gospel impacts us in every area of life. In every place that we find ourselves in, the day, in our day-to-day, -day, the good news of the, the gospel is driving force for our lives. And those things, again, are the way that Scripture paints this portrait um, of, of, the, of one who has trusted Jesus. But none of those things are indicating accomplishment. Rather, we as a people are called to reflect and respond to the complete accomplishment of Christ Jesus. The complete accomplishment. When Jesus says it is finished, it was completely accomplished. So when he spoke these words, right, he was saying that nothing can be added. My grace is completely sufficient. Everything that I have done is completely sufficient. Jesus lived a life completely in step with God's requirements. We have not, will not, and cannot. Jesus provided the necessary and final sacrifice for sin that we committed. We cannot, we have not, and we will not. God intended Jesus to be the final place where our, where our faith would be fixed. So Jesus spoke the words, It is finished. He spoke the words, it is finished. And this is complete accomplishment. And so what does this mean for us? What does this mean for us? That Jesus' uh, life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension is complete accomplishment. It means that things that you cannot do, there is nothing that you can do or, uh, or cannot do will not bear your salvation or remove it from you. When people wander into a church People wander into church and they look around and they say, boy, I know people who oppose Christianity who look better than this group of people. I know people who, who are completely indifferent to Jesus and are more moral, have more integrity and are nicer and are more cordial. But we as the church come together not seeking to accomplish something, but to recognize that something has been accomplished on our behalf. We don't mix this up. We're not going to mix this up. We're not going to mix this up. We need to, as the church, get off our high horse. We're not better than others. Our sin isn't lesser. Our sin, we've sinned against the Holy God in real dramatic ways. 
And some of you don't need me to say this. Some of you have been to dark places in your life and you understand the weight and the gravity of your own sin. You understand that God's standard is not a standard that you've lived up to. And you don't need me to say this to you. But some of us in this room, our sin is more subtle. Culturally, we're accepted. Cultural standards, we have met those. We're okay. We think that we're just fine. We're ignoring our sin in some senses altogether. Or maybe we redirect a conversation about our own personal sin. We redirect that away from us and towards a more societal offense or a more moral or a moral degradation or, or something along those lines. We're never grappling with the fact that the sin that Jesus paid for is still lurking in our own hearts. The church is made up of broken people who engage in broken things. Who oftentimes act in worldly ways, sometimes in more worldly ways than the world itself. Our hope is not the front that we put on or can put on. Our hope is in the death, the burial, and resurrection of Jesus that accomplished life for us. We are forgiven despite how messed up we look. CEOs of charities have no advantage over serial killers in the kingdom of heaven. The call is universal. Turn from your sin and trust Christ alone. There is nothing you can accomplish in this life that will earn your salvation. There is one who accomplished it on your behalf. Christ Jesus, trust him. So that's our first point this morning. Jesus spoke, it is finished, to indicate complete accomplishment on our behalf. Secondly then, Jesus spoke, it is, spoke, it is finished, to indicate the Father's complete satisfaction. The Father's complete satisfaction. What do you mean by this? To satisfy means to meet all the requirements. To meet every single requirement. And Jesus met all of the requirements of God in His earthly life. Um, God's character demands justice. Sin against God does not and will not go unpunished. Paul writes in Romans 1, uh, verse 18, just a couple of verses after the text we looked at last week, just a couple of verses after that text, he writes, For the wrath of God is revealing it from heaven against all ungodliness and righteousness of men. God's wrath, if you are in Christ, God's wrath that was intended for you was poured out on Jesus on the cross. As Jesus hung there and he said, It is finished. God's wrath was satisfied. All of the requirements were met. All of the requirements were met. So if you trusted Jesus, you don't need to fear God's wrath. You don't need to fear God's wrath. God has made peace, or Jesus had made peace with God. The words, it is finished, was spoken to grant us peace, inner peace. For us as people, the peace of God. It should wash over us with a sense of relief. Every day, everything I fear in my day to day is taken care of. The wrath of God, the tsunami that I stood looking at, waiting to come crashing down on me, has been rerouted has been diverted. Not a single drop of water will fall on my head. Not an ounce of God's wrath will be poured out against me. Because it was all poured out on Jesus on my behalf. I will not bear it at all. Christ bore it completely for me. Many of us live in apprehension or fear. Uh, many of us experience significant anxieties in our lives. I know this is one way that the gospel has incredibly impacted my own life. When we're afraid of situations of people and experience this anxiety just ordering food at a fast food restaurant or just under thinking about going into a group of people. 
Just spending time, even people that I love, family members, spending time with them brought me an incredible amount of anxiety. Public speaking? No way. <laughs> no way, absolutely not. <laughs> this is where the gospel really impacted my story. The one thing I needed to be fearful of is falling under the wrath of God. And if I'm in Christ, God's promised, God has promised to me that that will not happen. Absolutely not. Not an ounce of that wrath will come my way, but it all is redirected, reverted to Christ. If I'm in Christ, God's promise of death will not happen. The wrath of God will not fall on me. Paul writes in Romans 8, there is, now, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And he also writes later in Romans 8, if God is for us, who can be against us? There's no fear of men. There's no fear of circumstances. What can man do to me? You can all come up to me afterwards and tell me that I, this is terrible. Everything that I've said to you this morning is absolutely terrible. You're going to tell me that I look ugly. You could physically harm me. Whatever it is that you, you take my life from me. But you cannot remove the fact that in Jesus Christ I am under no condemnation. Jonathan Edwards, a famous 18th century American theologian, wrote... I mean, he wrote a whole host of these resolutions for himself, and he wrote this resolution. He says, Resolved when I fear misfortunes and adversities to examine if I have been faithful to do my part and trust, repent of any sin, and trust God for the outcome. Jonathan Edwards knew that the reflection of the gospel in those moments, in those moments where you felt fear, um, was the only place that you could go. This morning, Abel, our four-year-old, said to me at breakfast, I was feeding him breakfast, and he said to me, he said, Dad, I'm really worried. I said, buddy, why are you worried? And he said, swordfish. And I said, what? Why? And he said, they have sharp noses. <laughs> and I said, okay, bud, there's no swordfish here in North Dakota. You're dead. <laughs> I was just thinking about that this morning. The fear of swordfishes in North Dakota is like the fear of man for us. It's something that is so far from, from us. We live in a place where the cold can kill you 80% of the year. You don't need to fear swordfish. There is no longer fear if we've trusted Jesus. Step out of that fear to an assurance that the words of Jesus that he spoke on the cross, he spoke these words clearly, for our peace, it is finished. The only thing you have to fear has been rerouted off of you onto Jesus Christ. On the cross, cross, the wrath of God was completely satisfied. So that's the second thing then. Jesus spoke it is finished to indicate the Father's complete satisfaction. And then the last thing this morning that we'll consider, we'll move to the table. Jesus spoke it is finished to indicate and make possible our complete satisfaction. Everything that we as people require, Jesus spoke it is finished to indicate and make possible our complete satisfaction. David wrote in Psalm 1611, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. When Jesus said it is finished, he ensured that truth for us. He ensured that we would know the path of life. 
He ensured that in the presence of God, we would know fullness of joy. At His right hand, we would experience the pleasures of God forevermore. Everything we need is given to us in the gospel. Everything that we desire, our deepest longings are granted to us in Christ Jesus. This is not an open invitation to do what we want, but an important commentary on the only thing that can bring us joy. We've keyed on this throughout this series, but I, coming to a close, I want to ask these questions. Where are you seeking satisfaction? Consider that question throughout the course of your week. Really think about it. Where are you seeking satisfaction? Don't lie to yourself. Write that question down. If you have a pen, file it away in your brain. Think to yourself, am I living my life seeking satisfaction in my work, in my marriage? in my family, in my relationships, in my health, in my body, in my intellect, in my wisdom, in my hobbies, in my downtime, in my talents, in my experiences, my social circles. Am I seeking satisfaction in my reputation, in my problems, in my sleep, in my bank account, in my retirement account, in my possessions, in my responsibility, my lack of responsibility, in my being needed or in being wanted? or in being free to do what I want, in being desirable, are we seeking satisfaction in something other than Christ Jesus? Are we looking at the things in this earth that bring us satisfaction and bring us joy and saying, thank you God for granting this joy to me in the temporary so that I might enjoy you forever? When Jesus said it is finished in verse 30 of John chapter 19, when he said it is finished, he ended your pursuit of satisfaction. He ended it. He said, no, it is done. It is finished. It is completely finished. You no longer have to look anywhere else for satisfaction but in me alone. He established the path of life, as David writes, by ensuring our place in God's presence where there's fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. This is us, though. We're wandering around our house looking for the glasses when they're on our head. We're wandering around, we're digging through, rummaging for everything in our, for our car keys when they're in our pocket. We're trying to remember our server's name when it's right on their name tag. We've, we've, we're driven, we've driven around town a hundred times looking for our own home. The question of where you seek satisfaction is that it's found right in front of you. If you're in Christ Jesus, satisfaction, complete, total satisfaction is found in Christ Jesus. In Him alone, stop seeking satisfaction elsewhere. Jesus' words, it is finished. So then in conclusion, we're going to move to the Lord's table in a few minutes and think about the satisfaction of Jesus Christ as we, as we eat the bread together, as we drink the cup together. But I want you to think about Jesus' words on the cross one more time and what they mean for us first. Just three things in conclusion. First, where you seek satisfaction... Where we as people seek satisfaction determines what our God is. It's that critical. It is that critical. Where we seek satisfaction determines where or who or what our God is. If you first seek satisfaction in God and all that He is for you in Jesus Christ, the words that Jesus spoke on the cross are great comfort. You said it is finished. You said yes, absolutely satisfaction can only be found in Christ. Jesus. But if you're seeking satisfaction in something other than Jesus, 
If you're seeking satisfaction in something other than all that God is for you in Christ Jesus, you can, with meaning, cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because that God has forsaken you. The source of your satisfaction, if it is anything other than Jesus Christ, will forsake you. It will. You will feel anxiety and apprehension or fear because that source of satisfaction is no ability to say, as Christ said, it is finished. That source cannot meet God's requirements on your behalf. That source cannot bear punishment for the sin that you deserve. Seek God in all that He is for you in Christ. He is the only source of satisfaction. That's first. Then first, if where we seek satisfaction determines what or who our God is. Secondly, then, in conclusion, if you are in Christ, then the words, Lema Sabachthani, why have you forsaken me? The words, Lema Sabachthani, will never with meaning fall from your mouth. Never with meaning fall from your mouth. Jesus' cry, why have you forsaken me, is not for you. That is for him. He was the one who stood in on your behalf. He was forsaken so that you will not be. The Spirit of Christ was granted to you. If you are in Christ, the Spirit of Christ has been granted to you as a guarantee, as a seal. The Spirit bears witness with your spirit that you are God's child. The promise of the presence of God that you will never walk in into when this life is over. If you, The Spirit of Christ Granted to you as a guarantee, as a seal, as a promise of the presence of God that you will walk into when this life is over. The guarantee is given to you so that you will never have to speak the words, Lema Sabachthani, why have you forsaken you? So these words are not for you, they were for Christ. And in them finds their finality. And then finally this morning, before we move to the table, finally, the words, it is finished, means that all I have needed now all that I have ever needed to be accomplished for salvation has been accomplished in Christ. All that I have ever needed for salvation has been accomplished in Christ. Rest from your works. This is where rest is found. Rest from your works. They cannot merit salvation for you. They cannot bring you into right standing with God. Only the shed blood of Jesus Christ, the life, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus can merit your salvation. Allow the gospel to compel you. Allow the gospel to compel you to Christ-like living and unashamed proclamation like Paul writes in Romans 1, verse 16. So then this morning, as we turn our attention, we're going to turn our focus to the table. This is something that we do as believers. If you're not a member of Buffalo City Church and you've professed Christ, we would invite you to participate together with us this morning. I mean, if you don't know where you stand, if all of this that I've spoken this morning sort of doesn't make any sense to you, that's okay. I'm going to ask that you just refrain. We're going to go together as people who have placed our trust in Jesus, who have been reminded that the wrath of God has been diverted, who have been reminded that satisfaction can only be found in Jesus. We're going to go here, and we're going to take these elements together as those who proclaim that both with our mouths and with our lives. So this is an act that we participate together in as God's people. Paul says that in this, in this, when we do this, when we do this, we are proclaiming Jesus' death until he returns. By eating the bread and drinking the cup, we are trusting in Christ's words, it is finished. We are trusting in Christ's words, it is finished. We are proclaiming his death until he comes.
His broken body for us. His shed blood for the remission, the forgiveness of our sins. This is accomplished salvation for us. Again, eating this, by eating this, we are proclaiming that our satisfaction is found in Him. This is why we eat. This is why we eat. Sure, our bodies need nourishment and to be sustained, but we eat as an expression of the satisfaction that we find in Jesus Christ. I believe that's why God created us to eat. So that we could see that there is something that we can be satisfied in, and it's in Him alone. We are reminded that because of His work on the cross, we will never find ourselves in a situation where we are left or forsaken. We can go to this, we can participate, we can eat the bread and say, this body was broken for me so that I will never be left nor forsaken. We can drink the cup and we can know that I will never be left nor forsaken. This is a promise to us here this morning. So again, this is for those who have trusted Christ. So I would invite you, when your heart is prepared, to come forward, just grab the elements, grab the, the juice, grab the, the bread. You can participate up here if you'd like, or you can head back to your seat and participate when your heart is, is ready to go. Um, parents of young kids, if there are any young kids in here, we just ask that you would ex uh, that you'd exercise discretion on behalf of your children. Um, if they're prepared to participate and you believe that as, as, a, as a parent, go ahead and allow them to participate with you. If you're not sure where they stand, just, just uh, allow them to observe and reflect on, on the things that you're doing as one who has trusted Jesus. So let me pray, uh, and then we will participate together in the Lord's Day.